Morning, everybody. Thanks for uh, joining us here on this uh, Tuesday morning. Um, uh, as Scott said, I'm Chris Grindle. I'm uh, one of the otolaryngologists here and uh, one of the co-directors of the uh, Connecticut Children's Vestibular Imbalance Program. And this is Courtney, um, who is uh, the co-director of the Balance and Vestibular Imbalance Program, and also sort of really the driving force behind it. So uh, it's nice to be up here to be able to uh, share this with you, with you, and, and talk a little bit about uh, the evaluation and management of. Uh, uh, vestibular complaints in children. Um, uh, familiar with the slide. Um, so, you know, a little bit of an introduction. We'll sort of, you know, standard talk. We're going to talk about the anatomy and physiology of vestibular system, the uh, vestibular directed history and exam, because uh, as, as is true with a lot of different things, um, if you just listen to the patient and ask them a couple open-ended questions, uh, they'll often tell you what's going on with them and uh, help uh, guide you through the differential. Testing really helps to uh, um, backfill and, and answer some questions. Um, and then um, you can uh, provide appropriate therapy for them as, as needed. Um, and then we'll also talk at the end a little bit about our uh, vestibular imbalance program here. So, um, so, we don't really think too much about vestibular complaints in children, um, but when you actually look at the literature and look at you know who's coming in, who's complaining about uh, vestibular uh, issues, uh, imbalance or uh, vertigo or dizziness, it turns out about 5.3% of uh, kids actually have complaints of this. There was a large study that looked at um, kids presenting to the emergency department and uh, about 53 uh, percent of the complaints for that. And it varies, you know, from 4% to 20% to depending on who you read. But, uh, and the causes for children are not really well detailed or well delineated. In adults, there's lots of literature about what causes dizziness, but in kids, not so much. And it's really often overlooked or dismissed because, hey, kids are clumsy, they're uncoordinated, they're goofy, they're silly, they're just playing, they're just acting out, they're just, I don't know, any number of the things that we've called our kids, and they're just kids. But maybe they're not. Um, maybe they do have something going on, and why is it important? Well, if you can't orientate your, or orient yourself in space, you can't orient your eyes, and you have no idea where you are on this planet, then you don't do well. Um, and so that can affect your motor development, your psychological well-being, academic achievement, quality of life, future earning potential. I mean, we've probably all in this room, because we're all a little bit older, at some point experienced an episode of vertigo or imbalance, and it just stinks. And so, you know, if you have that uh, as a chronic lifelong problem, then, then it really can affect things. Um, one, of the, one of my particular interests, and uh, um, also when I get to work with um, our colleagues in, um, in audiology, we work with a lot of kids who have hearing loss, and particularly sensory neural hearing loss. And so in that patient population, uh, vestibular uh, complaints or vestibular issues are extraordinarily common, uh, occurring in over one third of those patients. This is a study out of, um, uh, a group in Toronto. Um, so the vestibular system as a system um, really well preserved within human evolution. It's really, you know, all vertebrates have some sort of vestibular system because it really, it's very important um, to preserve so that you know where you are in space and so that you can interact with your environment appropriately. Um, so at week four development, you have these otic placodes, which become otic pits and otic vesicles. And this is a little bit, you know, too detailed for, for most, but for the otolaryngology residents that are there, that are here, you know, there's the utricular portion, which becomes the semicircular canals and they, 
develop from the superior and then the posterior and then the lateral canal. And that did show up on an in-service one, so just telling you. Um, and then the utricular portion also becomes the utricle, the saccular portion becomes the saccule and the, the uh, cochlear duct. And we'll talk a little bit more about what these things are in just a minute. Bony capsule from 19 to 23 weeks. And then pretty much by 25 weeks of gestation, it's normal adult size. You know, a little bit of growth occurs after that, but really that's it. Um, the various receptors, the otoconia start by seven weeks. Um, you get your hair cells because it's not a, you know, ear organ if it doesn't have hair cells in it. Um, start forming by about seven weeks and then those hair cells start to differentiate a little bit later. And then those receptors are active by about the 30 second week of, of gestation. So, so um, you are born with some uh, vestibular induced reflexes. And so the, the ones that we'll talk about um, specifically through the course of this talk are the vestibulo-ocular reflex, the vestibulo-spinal reflex, and the vestibular colic reflex, which are really all present to varying degrees at birth and mature through the course of uh, childhood and have some testing variables that uh, uh, change through childhood, but uh, ultimately um, can be tested and, and are uh, in fact present at birth. And so this is them all put together, and this is the cochlear vestibular apparatus. Um, I'm sure you know, we're all somewhat familiar with, with this. Um, but this kind of goes through and, and really looks to, you know, this, this whole thing is packed into the petrous apex and the temporal bone, so sitting right here behind your ear, and this is, this is it. This is the sensory organs of, of uh, peripheral balance as well as hearing. And so this is coming from the internal auditory canal. You've got your... Uh, your vestibular nerves, you've got your cochlear nerve, so the yellow is your cochlear vestibular bundle and wrapped in there is the facial nerve, so that's going to go out through the stylomastoid foramen and go out and innervate your face um, and make your muscles of your face move. Cochlear nerve coming into the cochlea anteriorly and then posteriorly you've got the superior and inferior portions of your vestibular nerve coming into the various um, uh, apparatus or organs uh, or end organs if you will of the uh, uh, of the vestibule and of the uh, the balance uh, system so you've got your um, crista ampullaris which are the dilated ends of the semicircular canals and then your saccule and your utricle um, and really what they are is they're accelerometers and so they sit in this um, bony capsule and so we've got the three angular accelerometers. And so you've got your horizontal, your anterior, and your posterior semicircular canals, and then your otolithic organs, which are linear accelerometers. And so those are your utricle, which are, uh, which because of how it's oriented is responsible for basically letting you know when you're accelerating in the horizontal plane and your saccule, which is responsible for the uh, vertical plane. And so let's kind of go up here, back here for a second. And so, you know, so sort of this, this, uh, uh, pink, excuse me, sorry, I lost colors there for a second. Um, this pink is, is the membranous component, and so that's fluid-filled. And so just like the cochlea is fluid-filled, the vestibule is fluid-filled as well. And so, but the, the, it's fluid encased in bone. And so these sensory organs, the, um, the crista, or the, as it's called really at this end, the cupula, this is sort of a gelatinous um, membrane. And so that's fixed to the bone. And so when you move, the fluid moves, um, or actually, this is, I, I 
said this wrong. Um, when you move, the bone moves, but the fluid actually stays, stays still for a second. So there's that moment of inertia. And so the fluid stays and it pushes the membrane. And so that then, then kicks off the, um, uh, the, the nerve and to, to fire and then go off. And so it's that, that, you know, that fluid within a, a fixed canal that, that gets that all to work. Um, and uh, you've uh, probably heard or, um, people having rocks in their head, and those are the otolithic organs. Those are little calcium carbonate um, uh, crystals that sit within the, uh, the um, utricle and the saccule. And so in the uh, semicircular canals, it's a gelatinous material that provides the mass, and in the, um, the uh, um, utricle and the saccule, the otolithic organs, it's a, a little bit of calcium carbonate crystals that provide that. Um, and so, as mentioned, there are the angular accel and linear accelerometers, and they really function in parallel or in concert with other um, peripheral sensory uh, um, uh, apparatus to help orient us in, in space, and, and particularly um, our visual sense and then our somatosensory um, uh, function so being able to look around and see the environment where we are and then also kind of feel where we are and so those three sensory inputs then come up through the vestibular nuclei um, in the brainstem are processed in the cerebellum and then have motor outputs to our vestibular ocular reflex our vestibular colic reflex and our vestibular spinal reflex and those really function to keep us oriented in space as we're moving around in, in our environment so particularly the vestibular ocular reflex generates eye movements to enable clear vision during head movements. So imagine walking around and then every time you took a step, the world moved with you. And so that it, it happens to people who have vestibular dysfunction. It's very disconcerting, but the vestibular ocular reflex is um, responsible for uh, making sure that that doesn't happen to you so that, you know, it's a smooth movement through the world. Um, and you can imagine sort of evolutionary preserve, like, you know, if you're like, if you don't have this system and you're running away from a predator and you the world's bobbling all over the place, like you're not gonna make it. So, you know, this is this is around for a reason. So, um, you, know, when it, you know, when each canal gets stimulated, then it goes up through the vestibular nuclei and then this is just the vestibular ocular reflex, you know, through the sixth nerve and the third nerve, the medial longitudinal fasciculus. Um, but basically, as you move to the left, your eyes move to the right, so staying fixed on the target. Um, and that's just the reflex um, um, working for you. The vestibular colic reflex, essentially, you know, the same thing, you know, that, you know, as you're moving through space, your, your uh, vestibular nuclei and your cerebellum are processing this to say, you know, you're moving, you should keep your head straight, you should use the muscles in your neck to keep your head straight. Um, and the, um, uh, get compensatory um, body movements to maintain head and, and postural stability and prevent falls um, as you're moving, um, making sure that your vestibular spinal reflex uh, is in place because um, you, know, you have to be able to move around in this world. So it's a complicated system and any disruption, whether on the peripheral side of things or the CNS or the central integration of all of this can cause uh, dysfunction and will elicit symptoms of dizziness or people will describe that they're feeling unsteady or not right or um, off kilter, if you will. Um, and so it's difficult to describe. The words are nebulous, like I don't feel good, I feel weird, I feel wobbly, I feel goofy, I feel wonky, whatever. 
Um, and those are hard for adults to describe, but if you can imagine kids trying to describe this, very rarely can younger kids, occasionally the older kids can say, yeah, the room is spinning to the left. Um, and that's great when they can say that, but when they can't, they're just like, I don't know, they just feel weird or they act weird. And so, so a little bit you have to look at some of the symptoms. And so maybe they're clumsy, maybe they're not riding a bike like their, their peers are. They fall a little bit more often. Um, Certainly, if you're you're looking at them and, and they have weird eye movements or nystagmus, then you know if you know what it is, then certainly you can pick it up and, and refer. But for a parent, you know, it's just seeing their their kid's eyes move all over the place. It can be you know somewhat disconcerting. You know, other things as you start to take away from uh, some of those other um, vestibular inputs, and so you know, kids who have a lot of difficulty walking around in a dark room, you know, if they don't, you need you know, big, just like a chair, you need to have at least three legs to stand on. And if you, 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 if you don't have a vestibular system and you don't have, you know, eyes, um, or you, you know, you have to have at least two of the three to be able to, to, to stand. And so, you know, if, if one of those goes, then, uh, then you have a problem. So people who have difficulty, say, ambulating in the dark or, um, can have problems. Um, you know, kids that seem to clutch onto their parents a little bit more often, delayed motor development. And so the differential can go all over the place. It can be very, you know, vast and ranges from just, you know, otitis media can cause this, benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, I apologize, let's just say BPPV and not BBBV, um, to migraine. Um, and it can also, you know, present, you know, in a wide range of, uh, of ways. And so, you know, this is this article that I referred to earlier about, you know, 5.3% uh, of children having some sort of complaint when they walked into the emergency department. They looked at 22 different uh, articles, you know, over 2,700 kids. And really, of all the different things that can cause uh, vertigo or vestibular complaints in children, oh, almost half of them were caused by four things. So vestibular migraine, benign paroxysmal vertigo of childhood, idiopathic labyrinthitis or vestibular neuronitis. Really, this is the some data from that article, and so really, by far and away, you know, the most common are vestibular migraine or benign paroxysmal vertigo of childhood. Idiopathic is up there, and then it really kind of starts to drop off after that. You know, labyrinthitis and vestibular neuronitis are, you know, less than ten percent, and then really, you know, things that you think about as like common causes of dizziness, you know, you know in the non-pediatric population, Meniere's disease, benign paroxysmal peripheral vertigo, those are less than 5%. And then all the like super bad things that uh, you wanna make sure that you rule out, those are far less than 1%, like very, very, very uncommon. And one of the other things that, that I would point out in this we were sort of alluding to, it's this is very different than it is in adults. And so when you look at kids versus adults, and this is from a, a study in France, um, you know, migraine and benign paroxysmal vertigo of childhood, which is considered a migraine variant, most common, as opposed to adults, you look at that, you know, so over 30% versus 3%. And then sort of the converse is true for benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, less than 5% over 30%. Just a quick note about benign paroxysmal vertigo of childhood, um, described in 1964, now considered a migraine variant, typically occurs in children between three to eight years of age. They'll have these attacks of profound dizziness and instability that last seconds to minutes. They're very sudden and onset. They can occur in any position. They can be sitting, standing, walking, anything can be going on. Um, but then when they have these moments, they, they, they sit still, they cling to something, they drop. They'll often have nystagmus during the attack. 
Um, and then otherwise are completely and totally normal. After the attack, Zippo, like they look completely and totally normal. They're not postictal. They're not, they're just, you know, maybe they're a little bit sleepy and they'll go take a nap because they, you know, they but otherwise they're totally fine. And, and parents are very, you know, um, bothered by this. They'll come in and they'll, you know, describe that their kids have these, these sort of attacks and uh, you know they're worried that their kids are having seizure or, or something like that, and they're really just having these um, these uh, attacks of benign paroxysmal uh, vertigo of childhood. They'll often go away. They're all they'll often. Um, the natural history of this is that uh, that they'll go away. The attacks will lessen and they'll they'll um, resolve. They'll often develop migraines later on in life, classic migraines, and so and they often have a family history of migraine. So when you think about vertigo, or when you think about uh, um, complaints of vertigo. You know, you you have to kind of figure out well where on that differential do uh, do people come in and you know what what's causing this and so you need to figure out what's causing it to figure out what to do about it and so really this is where history becomes most important and this is the most important part about the vestibular exam is, is uh, history and so these are just eight questions that you should think about when you're you're seeing somebody for a, a vestibular complaint and these are um, adapted from a book disorders of the vestibular system so when do you get it. So is it some of the time? Is it all the time? Is it constant? Um, you know, is it always the same? Or, or you know, if it varies, what makes it worse or better? And so this kind of helps to delineate, you know, is this true vertigo? Because vertigo is never constant. It's never the same uh, feeling all the time. There's always something that makes it better. It's something that makes it worse. So another thing, and, and often as you're asking these questions, you get to sort of classic descriptions of these uh, types of um, uh, vertiginous complaints. So benign paroxysmal vertigo uh, in adults often occurs in, in its most severe form first thing in the morning as you're rolling over in bed. Um, so how long does it last? And so things like VPPV um, last for seconds. You know, they're very, very brief, very, very sudden attacks. Things like um, transient ischemic attacks or migraines, those last, you know, minutes to hours. You know, Meniere's attacks can last hours to days, and things like labyrinthitis and vestibular neuronitis, um, you know, the older you get, the longer they last. And so I was just having a conversation with one of my colleagues. We actually have a patient that we just saw who had uh, 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 labyrinthitis, you know, and she accommodated over the course of a couple of days to her symptoms, but we were talking how we as adults, um, we would be like, you know, vomiting and miserable for a week and, you know, older individuals, you know, 70, 80 plus are just like down for a month. Like it's horrible. Um, not that it's not horrible for a 13 year old, it's still horrible. It's just less horrible, less long, if you will. Um, you know, and then how many attacks have there been? So is it just one prolonged attack? So those are things like vestibular neuronitis or labyrinthitis, you have an infarct. You know, much, certainly less common in kids, obviously. Several things like Meniere's disease, migraine attacks, and then if it's, you know, every morning you wake up and then multiple times through the morning, then those are things like benign paroxysmal positional vertigo. Um, you know, what does it feel like? Is it, is it motion? Does it feel like the room is moving all over the place? Does it feel like something's pulling the shades over your eyes? Because maybe that's not vertigo at all. Maybe they're saying that they're dizzy, but they're really lightheaded and they're having presyncable events or um, uh, you know, orthostatic issues, and it's not vertigo at all. You know, what sets it off? Is it a position change? You know, again, this is, you know, is it uh, vertigo? So vertigo always works with movement. Um, is it position change? Do I go from laying down to standing up and then I get lightheaded and I feel off? Well, that's probably not vertigo. That's probably, you know, orthostatic hypotension, lightheadedness. 
um, is it changes in pressure. So um, we as otolaryngologists like our pneumatic otoscope, so you know, you're taking a look in the ear, you're moving the eardrum for assessment of middle ear fluid, seeing if the, um, you, know, you can get that um, uh, membrane to move, but that also changes the middle ear pressure. And so if there's pressure changes that produce um, uh, fluid then, or not fluid, uh, produce the symptoms then maybe it's a perilymphatic fistula or a third window phenomenon like a superior canal dehiscence. You know, these are all things that as you're going through can help narrow your differential. What makes it better? What makes it worse? Vertigo always works with movement. Um, and then what else uh, happens at the same time? Do you have tinnitus? Do you have fullness? Do you have uh, hearing loss associated with it? You know, things that would, you know, steer you towards like a Meniere's disease. Do you get a headache after your vertigo? You know, so, you know, does that suggest, uh, you know, migraine. Are you sweating, have palpitations, chest tightness? You know, are you having a panic attack? And lastly, what else is the background history? Do you have any other ear disease? Do you have a, you know, anxiety, depression, motion intolerance? Uh, you know, any other family history? So when we see these people, we, you know, with these complaints, we'll do a, a general otologic exam, cranial nerve exam, neurologic exam, look at uh, dynamic visual acuity, um, static uh, and dynamic vestibular imbalance. Uh, or vestibular testing for uh, vestibular imbalance or vestibular hypofunction. Um, when you're doing uh, exams to evaluate uh, spontaneous nystagmus, it's, it's great to get rid of fixation because if you focus on a point, you can often uh, suppress your nystagmus. So things like Frenzel glasses can be great for this because they're high diopter lenses that don't let you focus on anything. And so you can really unmask or um, bring out somebody's nystagmus. You want to look at the direction and whether both eyes are doing the same thing or if they're acting independent of each other. Um, you can do some things, other exam moves like uh, having people hyperventilate, which can cause some increases in intracranial pressure um, and unmask some other things. You can push on their tragus, uh, again, changing the pressure, and then you have them move their neck around. Um, and does that uh, bring out like cervical vertigo? Um, so again, more on just the general nerve ex uh, neuro exam. You can do um, various maneuvers like the Dix-Halpike maneuver, head thrust maneuvers, and post-head shake nystagmus to um, evaluate any um, abnormalities uh, that you may be able to induce in the vestibular system to be able to tell you if there's any uh, imbalance in the vestibular system. Um, and then uh, you can do vestibular spinal testing, so asking, you know, your finger to nose and pass pointing. Uh, the Fukata stepping test, which is basically having somebody stand up and asking them to uh, walk in place with their eyes closed, and if they rotate over 90 degrees, then um, uh, that's an abnormality. Uh, Romberg testing as well. And so a, a variety of different tests that we do in combination with our audiologist, um, some of actually most of these we have as components of our um, vestibular imbalance program here at Connecticut Children's. And so with that, I'm going to turn it over to my colleague in audiology, Courtney, who's going to bring us through the rest of this. Hi, I'm Courtney. Um, I'm an audiologist. Um, so we are here um, at the hospital, in the Children's Hospital. We're also in Glastonbury. Um, and Farmington is where I have the lab for the vestibular evaluations. Um, there's 11 of us on staff, so we're a pretty big-sized team. Um, and we do the diagnostic evaluations for the vestibular program. Um, the reason that we do them is because we're the ones that do the evaluations for disorders of the ears as far as hearing testing goes and neonates, that sort of thing. So it makes sense that we would be the ones to do the diagnostic testing. Um, we also have the equipment available to get the um, qualitative data about what's going on with the kids. 
Um, so we'll start with the traditional uh, vestibular test battery, which is the VNG or video nice diagnography. Um, it includes ocular motor tests, positional and positioning tests, um, and then bithermal calorics. So this is one of my friends. Um, all the testing takes place with goggles on. The goggles have infrared cameras that are connected to the computer that allow us to record the eye movements um, and also measure the eye movements. And what we're looking for is a difference between um, tests or difference between sides. Um, so she um, has you know, these little, there's cameras on the inside here and then they reflect off of these little mirrors. There's also a cover that can go over the goggles so that we can do vision denied conditions. So she'll be in the dark, but we can still see her eyes. Um, so for the ocular motor tests, we do a smooth pursuit, which is where they follow a dot as it swings back and forth like it's on a pendulum at varying speeds. It starts out kind of slow and then gets faster and faster. Um, saccades where it bounces around quickly across the um, screen. We do optokinetics, which is a combination of saccades and um, smooth pursuit, which I'll show you in a second. We do gaze testing, so we do end gaze nystagmus, checks for central um, function. Um, and again, these are all tests that are performed with the target or vision enabled, so there's something going on on the screen that the child watches, um, like a dot, like I said, for smooth pursuit and saccades. Um, for gaze testing, we actually have a Mr. Potato Head, and we tell him to look at the big red nose on Mr. Potato Head, and as he goes from side to side and up and down. So um, we're really lucky that our equipment that we have is very pediatric focused. Um, and anything abnormal on these tests generally indicates a central pathology. Um, so this is just an example of what smooth pursuit looks like in a normal person. So you can see that she's got her eye going back and forth, and she's following it really easily. There's no psychotic movements. It's really smooth. <laughs> Um, she's able to keep up as it goes. Um, kids who have difficulty with reading will have a lot of trouble with this task. It's something that we found. We've had about a half dozen kids who have come in with difficulty learning to read, and they'll be able to track to the left, but as soon as they try to track to the right, it's completely over for them, um, which then obviously leads to their difficulty learning how to read. Um, this is our optokinetics. So what happens is you tell the patient to look towards the middle of the screen right here and count the train cars as they go by. And what you'll get is a smooth pursuit as it goes across and then a saccade as it clicks back to the center. And we look at the gain, um, the bigness of the movement as it goes across. So this is going in the leftward direction and then it would go again in the rightward direction. We would look at the differences between the two. Again, those kids that have the difficulty with the reading will have good optokinetics to the left and then they'll fall apart when they go to the right. They just kind of go off the screen and then have a hard time getting back on task. Oops. Not what I wanted to do. Um, then we move on to the positional and positioning testing. So spontaneous nystagmus, we put the cover over their eyes and look to see if there's any um, eye movements while they're just sitting there. Um, then we do the Dick's Hall pipe where we lay them down and check for the BPPV. Um, and then we also do head and body side to head and body um, with the side. So we have them lay down and then head to the right, body to the right, head to the left, and body to the left. Um, all the testing is performed with the vision denied. We have a light that will turn on inside of the goggles to enable vision. So if we see some nystagmus, we'll turn on the light and see if they can suppress it. Um, if they can suppress the nystagmus, it's non-localizing. It doesn't tell if it's a central or peripheral problem, but if they can't suppress it, then it's a central problem. Um, it was Star Wars Day, the day they took these photos of me, so I'm wearing my R2-D2 dress um, with my friend here again. <laughs> My sister said, I didn't know that was something people dressed up for, but when you work at a children's hospital, you get to do that. Um, so you can see over here, these are her eyes on my computer screen. Um, we're doing the um, 
supine position test. So we do a supine, you can see the bed's raised, it's to 30 degrees, and that's to look for um, spontaneous nystagmus when she's in the position that we're gonna do the calorics in. Um, and that's because we need to rule out any effects of spontaneous nystagmus. So this is kind of what my setup looks like here. Um, and then by thermocaloric irrigations, what we do is we blow cool air into each ear and then we blow warm air into each ear. And what it does is it stimulates the um, horizontal canal and makes the fluid in there start to move. And it gives the perception that you're moving. So it actually makes you feel like you're rolling down a hill or like you've had too many drinks. Um, that's not a reference I use with the kids. The rolling down the hill is the reference I use with the kids. Um, but what it does is it assesses the slow velocity input of the horizontal semicircular canal. And again, what we're doing is we're looking for a difference between the two sides. So if you have a big robust um, response on the right, but you don't have a response on the left, that indicates left vestibular hypofunction. Um, a difference of greater than 25% is considered significant on this test. Um, VAMP is the next, next one. Um, it's vestibular evoked myogenic potential. And again, like Chris said, it uh, assesses the otolith dysfunction. There's two different ways that you can do it. Generally, we only do the cervical VAMP, um, which measures the saccule. But if we have a reason to do it, we can do the OVAMP. Um, but it does involve putting electrodes around the eyes, and kids just aren't usually game for that. Um, so we do see VAMP because it's on the um, neck. So here's my friend again. You can see we've got um, referencing ground electrodes and then the active electrodes on either side. She's got earphones in her ears, and what we do is we play a really loud sound in there, about 100 decibels, and it only takes about 10 seconds to run the test, so it's not for a particularly long amount of time. But she'll turn her head to the side to activate the neck muscle, and then we do the readings on the computer. We'll do um, two runs at a loud intensity and get an average, and then we drop the volume down actually to about 70 to 75. And the reason for that is because when you get a low threshold for a response, so usually for people with a normal vestibular system, this response goes away at like 80 decibels or so. If you get a response down at about 70, 75, then it can indicate a third window pathology. So what we get is a positive deflection and a negative deflection, and we measure the bigness of these two amplitudes, right versus left. Um, and again, a difference of 40% is considered significant. Um, the reason we use a really big difference like that, 40% seems really big, but that accounts for differences in the neck tension. So if they're not holding their neck as hard on this direction as they do on this direction, it takes that into account. Um, some relatively new technology that we have here that's um, pretty exciting for us is the vestibular um, head impulse test. So it's kind of like one that you could do in the office, but again, it gives you a little bit more qualitative data. And it looks for um, impaired VOR function um, by looking for over and covert saccades or in quick head rotations. The great thing about this is that it's more real world. Um, in calorics, it's a really, really slow frequency of movement, which isn't real world for anybody. This is really fast, um, quick movements. So what you do is you put your hands on the kid's head and you do these quick little jerks, kind of like side to side. Um, and what you're looking for, well, they keep their eyes focused on a target. Um, and so what you're looking for is that the eyes are able to stay focused on the target. And this is what's shown here on the right side. If they have a dysfunction, when you go towards the side of injury, they'll have these saccades. So you can see that she has these movements here. These are the overt saccades that you would be able to see if you didn't have the goggles on her, if you didn't have her connected to the computer. These are ones that you'd be able to see in the clinic. But really what we're measuring are these covert saccades. So these are ones that actually happen during the head rotation that you wouldn't be able to see as the practitioner just looking at the patient. Um, and that gives us a little bit more information about it. 
Um, so like I said, we have our lab in Farmington and that's where all of the diagnostic testing takes place, but all of the audiologists can do screening tests in any of our locations. So if we have a child that comes in that we're concerned about and we think might need a little bit more workup, um, these are some of the kind of bedside tests that we can do in the office. Um, so the first one will be the single leg standing. So for any child over five years old, they should be able to stand on one leg with their eyes closed for about five seconds. If they can't, um, that's a pretty strong sign that they might have something going on. Um, we have a questionnaire that we can give families called the Pediatric Dizziness Handicap Inventory. Um, it was uh, developed at Vanderbilt. Um, it's completed by the caregiver or parent, and it's 21 items related to your child's problem, which could be dizziness, imbalance, um, anything like headedness, any of the symptoms that they're kind of reporting. Um, and it's a yes, sometimes, or no. And then based on the score, it tells us do they have a lot of problems, a little bit of problems, severe, mild, moderate, that sort of thing. Um, and then we also have um, eye charts available with metronomes that we can do dynamic visual acuity tasks. Um, we also have a computer-based model called the CDVAT, which is, runs on a PowerPoint presentation, and the child reads off the numbers as they go across the screen. Um, and currently I'm doing a research study here looking at dynamic visual acuity tasks um, in children with sensory neural hearing loss, permanent sensory neural hearing loss, um, and their perceived problems um, based on the PDHI. So, um, Kind of in conclusion here, I think, um, you know, we're looking at what we can do to make things better for the kids here. Um, we can understand how the anatomy, physiology, and maturation of the balance system in children, and that's what we're here for, for with you guys today. Um, make sure that we're getting really good and concise history and physical. Um, make sure that our, rig our rigorous and objective in our laboratory evaluations, that we're doing everything that we can to assess their pro um, problems. Um, and then share the knowledge. We have a multidisciplinary approach here. So Chris and I work together also with the physical therapy department here at Connecticut Children's. So we do the evaluations and assessment. And then we send them off to PT um, so that they can have um, some help. So this is our website here. Um, some faces might look familiar now to you guys. And um, just as a little wrap up about our program, um, we started officially seeing patients in April of last year. Um, and again, we have this multidisciplinary approach that we've been using. Um, before this program started, we'd see a handful of dizzy kids every year and wouldn't really know what to do with them. We'd say, yeah, you're dizzy, go to PT, go to neurology, you know, good luck. If they were old enough, we could send them over to um, an adult facility that was doing vestibular evaluations, but that was only if they were over the age of 14. Um, since we started the program um, a little under a year ago, we've seen 43 patients, which works out to be about six visits a month, which between two audiologists is a pretty fair amount of patients. Um, and we're hoping to continue to expand that over the next couple of years. Um, so if you have any you know, referrals that you would like to do, um, you can go directly through ENT or audiology. Generally, audiology sees the patients first. Um, so if you have a patient that you would like us to see, refer them to audiology. And then I tend to kind of be the gatekeeper. Do they need to go to ENT? Do they need to go to neurology? Do they need to go to PT? Do they need to go to psych? Anything like that. Um, and just make sure that you speci specify that it's vertigo. Um, we want a vestibular evaluation. Um, and then we'll do all of this as appropriate. Um, and then we also have them back to reevaluate and document outcomes. We've actually had one follow-up that we've done that has um, demonstrated improvement in her symptoms with PT.